Hello, I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. In 1968, Paul Ehrlich claimed that the battle to feed all of humanity is over and that mass starvation was imminent. He was completely, utterly, and totally wrong. But because Ehrlich is a leader of the environmentalist movement, just last week, 60 Minutes brought him back to make more predictions of imminent doom unless we vastly reduce our quality of life. Joining me and my colleague Sarah Lee to discuss Ehrlich's life, work, and revival to aid the green agenda is Steve Malloy, senior legal fellow at the Energy and Environment Legal Institute. Uh, Steve, thanks for joining us. Uh, before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Uh, I've been working on environmental issues uh, for more than 30 years now. I have a background in science, a graduate degree in statistics. I'm a lawyer, a securities lawyer. Um, I have, um, you know, I, I work a lot on what EPA has been doing. I was on the uh, Trump-Pence EPA transition team. Um, I have been active in every way, shape, and form. Uh, trying to bring good science uh, to the environmental debate. Uh, when I started out, uh, I was uh, I, I got into this because I was just amazed at the amount of lying <laughs> that went on uh, when it came to environmental topics, and, and, and the amazed I was amazed at the amount of disinformation, and that just sort of attracted me. And I, I can't get out of it because it's, it's getting worse. I so that brings us to Paul Ehrlich. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, who is he and what was the population bomb? Okay. So, uh, Paul Ehrlich, um, is a professor at Stanford. He may be on emeritus, you know, emeritus status now, but he, for his career was a professor at Stanford in 1960s, 1967. Uh, he wrote a book called the population bomb and the population bomb about was about how the earth's population is just you know, growing out of control and we're running out of resources to feed the people. And, and for the record, this was when the population of the world was about half of what it is now, right? Um, yeah, probably maybe even less. P- plus, or, plus or minus. Yeah, mm-hmm. maybe even less. And so uh, in, in uh, Dr. Ehrlich's book, uh, he, he decided that the carrying capacity of the planet was about 2 billion people. And we were, had already exceeded that. And he made uh, predictions, including that there was, you know, the world would see mass starvation. Hundreds of millions of people would die from starvation in the 1970s. For the record, we now have about four times that many people. And the leading causes of, to the extent we have famine, it's because of armed conflict and malgovernment. Yes. Uh, we, we produce more food than ever, and that is largely because of technology. Ehrlich was not the first person to make these crazy predictions of people starving, uh, that honor probably goes to Thomas Malthus, uh, uh, 1700s. British. But at least Tom, at least Malthus had the excuse that the Industrial Revolution hadn't happened yet. Right. <laughs> right. Right. I wasn't slamming Malthus, but uh, he didn't foresee all the technology which coming. But Ehrlich lived in the middle of it. I mean, Ehrlich uh, lived in the middle of the race to the moon, for example. So he had, you know, he had already, as an adult, he had already seen quite a bit of, of progress technologically. Uh, Norman Borlaug was bringing the Green Revolution to India at this point. So Ehrlich saw all this, but ignored it anyway. Um, and, and he's, you know, and after the population bomb, he continued to say crazy things. In 1969, he made a prediction in the New York Times, which you can still read today, um, that uh, we would all, I mean, all, all of humanity would vanish in a, quote, blue cloud of steam um, by 1989. Now, obviously, we are all still here, so that did not happen. Sarah, your thoughts? Uh, Well, I think that it's interesting to me that we were talking before the show that uh, 
you know, this might just be Paul Ehrlich. He's 90. This might be his goodbye tour, right? But I wonder if there's a reason that we're, they're sort of trotting out this guy who's been talking about problems with population, um, overpopulation. Uh, because I think there are some, I hate to use the word globalist because it's got such a scary connotation, but there are some people working at pretty high levels who are sharing this kind of um, philosophy that, you know, we need to control population. Uh, you know, that certainly factors into some of the, uh, the um, ideas about abortion and things like that. And I'm wondering if that's why they're sort of trotting him out. And just to set the uh, the stage here, Ehrlich, if if the listeners don't know, was just on 60 Minutes, and they re-legitimized him despite the fact that he's been very wrong very many times over the years. Um, I, one of the things, and then I'll, I'll ask you know again if you think maybe this uh, population situation is what's leading to them trotting him back out. Um, but one of the things that was said, and I thought it was so funny, I actually laughed aloud, and I would love for you to to tell me what you think, is in that 60 Minutes uh, piece or, or segment, one of the Stanford professors who's a colleague of Ehrlich uh, said, uh, you know, we're, we're, he- we're heading toward this sixth mass extinction, you know, humans are destroying every other sort of living creature. I mean, they, go that, they weren't quite that dramatic, but they were close. And he said this, that's pretty atypical. The number of extinctions we're seeing is pretty atypical over the 4 billion years that life has been on this planet. And I laughed so hard. I was like, how can you know what's typical over 4 billion years? Which seems to sort of be kind of how this science of environmentalism works. So back to population, do you think that they're trotting that back out because there are some ideas that are re-emerging well, I mean, if you're part of the crowd that believes in catastrophic global warming and mass extinction, which, you know, is the 60 Minutes crowd and is the Paul Ehrlich crowd, if you read the New York Times or really any mainstream media today, that's, you know, you're, you, you can be excused for believing that that's the truth. I mean, that's what they've told everybody. That's the narrative. So here they've trotted out, you know, Paul Ehrlich, who has never been right about anything in his life. Um, he, he trotted him out to say, you see, I, what I told you is coming – what I told you would happen is happening. And of course it's not happening. Mm -hmm. He's always wrong. Uh, As to the credibility of this, you know, mass extinction coming, um, you know, I thought about this first off, there's, you know, a lot of this is tied with, uh, they try to tie it to climate. And of course there's not a single species that they can point to that has become extinct because, you know, it has warmed a little bit over the last 150, 200 years, not a single one. But I tried to think of, you know, what's the best way for people to think about this? And, you know, and I thought of this sort of paradox. Um, so, you know, during the 1940s, 50s, 60s and into the 1970s, we dumped millions and millions and millions of pounds of DDT on mosquitoes and various you know, uh, pests that we wanted to get rid of. Uh, we have tried to get rid of these pests and, and we have failed. Uh, there's all sorts of mosquito-borne uh, diseases and other insect-borne diseases. So we 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 tried to get rid of mosquitoes and we couldn't. Now you know people like Paul Ehrlich would have you believe that emissions of plant food. You know when we burn fossil fuels, the you know the, the pollutant they're worried about is carbon dioxide. Well, that is plant food. So you know they want you to believe that plant food is going to kill. Uh, you know, cause a mass extinction. But when we tried to actually spray poison on mosquitoes, we, we failed. How is, you know, it doesn't make any sense. 
So I want to touch back um, basically to, to something kind of Sarah was getting at. Is Ehrlich's obs- you know, focus on overpopulation, is that representative of the environmentalist movement as a whole uh, or at least like a substantial faction of it? I, I, yes, I, I think that um, they all believe that there are too many people and that there are going to be even, you know, even more too many people. <laughs> And, um, I, you know, it's not a very popular view to have. Um, so I don't, I, you know, they don't lead with it. Okay. You know, hating people mm-hmm. is not a good lead. Uh, Paul Ehrlich doesn't really care. You know, he, uh, once again, he doesn't, he doesn't care about being right. So, uh, he doesn't worry about things like that, but most of the, like the climate <laughs> movement, you know, they think that if they can show you pictures of polar bears, talk about a mass extinction, and that the planet needs to be saved, they think that's enough. They don't have to go into, well, there are too many people. But I think that really is the ultimate goal. Um, they think there are too many people, and um, you know they don't like all those people. They don't think they can control all those people. Uh, they're worried about all those people stealing the resources from them. Uh, and, of course, many of these people are uh, black and brown people around the world, poor people that they really don't want. Uh, it, it brings to mind a quotation from a book called Malaria Capers that came out in the 1990s. And uh, the author of that book um, sort of paraphrased a USAID official as saying that, well, you know, the the black and brown people around the world are better off dead than riotously reproducing. And so I think that that is their view. Um, They don't want to come out and say that because it's obviously grotesque. Uh, but that's their view, and that's what their policies try to do. Their policies are aimed at limiting the number of people. Yeah, and 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 that I think we should bring up going back to Ehrlich and the population bomb. Like that had policy implications, maybe not necessarily in the United States so much, but certainly abroad, did it not? Well, uh, you know, one of the things I remember Ehrlich advocating is the, you know, the government or the UN or somebody. Uh, basically putting birth control in drinking water. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> that's pretty twisted, mm-hmm. but that's what I about in the book. Yeah, and you know, I was just rereading something. This sort of touches on this subject um, of the pop, you know, the, his, his book. Uh, we wrote something back in 2018 um, saying that the population bomb, I guess we had a, a, a vice president that's preceded me, who said that uh, the the book, it's one of the books that begat Big Green. So it's interesting that this notion of population is so intimately sort of tied with the environmentalist movement. Yeah. Well, I would say, you know, the modern environmentalist movement really starts with uh, Rachel Carson's uh, 1962 book, Silent Spring, which was wrong. (laughs) Then goes to Paul Ehrlich and, and Population Bomb. Um, and those two were really enough to get the environmental movement uh, going. And, you know, uh, one of the reasons it's been able to take off is, well, it's, it's a popular agenda among people that like big government and like control and are worried about all those, you know, uh, billions and billions of black and brown people around the world using all, all the resources. Um, and, it, and, and it's just it's just it, it's been it's hard for uh, regular people to push back against this because the other side is just so overwhelmingly in charge of, you know, all institutions, universities, media. I mean, Paul Ehrlich, let's just take him because I, I, I can't get him out of my mind. He's never been right about anything. Yet he is a professor 
has been a professor at Stanford University. Uh, they've been proud to list him as a professor. Paul Ehrlich is a member of the prestigious National Academy of Sciences. How can that be? He cannot point to a professional uh, prediction or his or a work that that has been correct. I mean, it's it's incredible. And now he they roll him out for sixty minutes like he's you know some wise wise old man. He's just a crazy old man. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me. Like I said, I, I see. nefariousness in rolling him out. Like I see that they're trying to, that might be too strong a word, but they're trying to establish a narrative and they're using wise old (laughs) Ehrlich who's been wrong about everything to do that. And I'm wondering if we should be looking at that as a sign of things to come. Well, they want to validate the narrative. Mm -hmm. I think they feel that the narrative is in danger now. And it's being threatened. So they bring out Paul Ehrlich as this ninety-year-old guy to say, "See, I was." I want to. I want to actually um, uh, unwind that a bit. Why do you? Why do you think that there's that they're actually getting pushback on the narrative? What? 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 What are your? I guess, for lack of a better word, causes for optimism. Well, uh, you know, I, I, you know. on, on climate, for example, you know, people a couple of years ago, the big thing was cancel culture and people were worried about cancel. I guess cancel culture, I guess it still does happen today. Um, climate skeptics, people like me, we were the first ones canceled. We were canceled long before <laughs> cancel culture became anything. And the reason we were canceled is because we were right. We could unravel their narrative and we have been unraveling their narrative successfully um, for the last 25 years. Uh, if you look at your know, recent polls, the New York Times had a poll. Uh, over the summer of, of uh, uh, likely voters, how many prioritized climate? Only 1%. Okay, only 1%. Um, interest in climate is declining. So, it, and, and so, you know, their effort to, to, uh, to censor us. You know, I've been shadow banned on Twitter. Uh, never been kicked off, but have been shadow banned um, since Elon Musk bought Twitter. Um, you know, interested in, in my feed has exploded because I'm no longer shadow banned. Or at least not as not as much. Yeah, and we should mention at this point that you you have a, a an old website. I shouldn't. I mean, old and like it's been around. Yeah. <laughs> uh, called <laughs> Junk Science, which I think is where you did a lot of the debunking early on, and you still it still exists, right? Oh yeah, no Junk Science, and Junk Science has been. Um, you know, I, I I got into this because the very first things I worked on in the environment, I came in not particularly interested in the environment. I just, you know, I needed a job. I had good background for it. So I started working in it and it just struck me right away from my first project. This is just all a bunch of nonsense. Just a bunch of, uh, just a pack of lies. And the more I got into it, I was just continually astounded at how false the news and the claims are and how, you know, there's no data or science to back up any of this. And, I mean, it's been so fascinating that I've spent more than 32 years in it. I actually am interested in the money side of it because that's really what we kind of look at. And I'll let Mike uh, jump in here too. I feel like I'm I'm asking too many questions. Um, trying to play Robin to, you know, Howard Stern and sometimes I get a little out of my seat. But you said that you think that there this interest in in climate is waning. Um, you know, we've got Greta Thunberg out there rallying up the youth, trying to you know renew this interest. Um, do you think they're going to stop putting so much money behind climate? Um, is that sort of why they're trying to 
reaffirm the narrative because they're worried they can't raise the money that they once were doing well, raising? Look, with the Inflation, Re- Inflation Reduction Act that was passed last year, uh, they're getting $369 billion injected into uh, you know, the rent seeking part of the environmental movement, you know, the wind and solar energy and, and, you know, the research and battery technology, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, there's a large, there's, there's a lot of money going into this. Uh, of course, this is not something that, um, I think the public is demanding. This is something that, you know, this is what lobbyists for the green movement and these industries have been able to do in Washington. So they love it and they participate in all the propaganda. Uh, there's you know several there's several agendas at work here. I mean, part, one of it is the you know rent seekers, wind and solar industry, you know, the battery technology, those guys. And there's also the political side, uh, the ones that want to control how we live. So those those are the two primary agendas going on. I mean, <clears throat> so what's the like the institutional architecture um, of Obviously, the environmental movement as a whole, we know some of the big players, the sort of natural resources defense councils, the Sierra clubs, and then, as you mentioned, the environmentalist-aligned business rent-seeking community. But for somebody like Erlach, uh, you know, these – I mean, I don't know if you would – I would characterize him as a – I mean, would you characterize him as a fringe environmentalist? I don't even know. Uh, like what sort of institutional architecture is there for, for yeah. him and for sort of that faction? Well, uh, before Paul Ehrlich, uh, blocked me on Twitter, <laughs> um, you know, he was just, uh, when I followed his Twitter account, he was just sort of this old guy, rant, old leftist ranting and raving about things. Uh, I don't really think he's, uh, he, he's not very well plugged into the modern environmental industrial complex. Um, I mean, you raise really good points. You know, the environmental movement started out as Natural Resource Defense Council, Environmental Defense Fund, Sierra Club, groups like that. But it has expanded basically to every institution in America. Uh, There's not a university, a school of public health, a law school, a business school. Uh, They, you know, uh, throughout the government on the federal and state level. I mean, these people are wired in everywhere. The entire is that is that idea is that is that principally ideological or principally rent seeking in your opinion? Well, I think it's a combination of of the two. Um, You know, there's the U.S. government spends you know billions and billions, hundreds of billions of dollars on climate. A lot of that money goes to industry. A lot of that money goes to um, universities. So, you know, the money is everywhere uh, because the ideology exists. How does this tie into ESG? Do you think it ties into all of that as well? Uh, sure. Well, yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great question. Great topic. Um, you know, ESG is, represents the failure of the government to impose these sort of arbitrary environmental standards on businesses. So uh, the left, uh, for the last 40 years, they've been working on how to capture businesses and at this point in time, they have captured enough of the investment community that they think that they can have the investment community impose these arbitrary, non-scientific standards on companies. So that's what they're trying to do. Uh, now there is you know, pushback against uh, ESG. So um, 
I don't, I don't think ESG is going to go away. They, these people are very, they're smart, they're dedicated, they're well-funded, they will shapeshift into something else. Um, 15 years ago, I started a, a publicly traded mutual fund to push back against the ESG movement, which was then called corporate social responsibility. Now it has morphed into environmental social corporate governance in the future that'll probably have new initials for it. Um, but I mean, these are dedicated people. They have spent a lot, of, this is what they do for their careers. Hmm. Uh, well, uh, before we let you go, Steve, is there anything else you'd like to uh, make sure our listeners are aware of? Well, I, you know, I think you know everyone says they care about the environment, and um, unfortunately, very few people actually take the time to learn anything about it. And you know, if you want to get out there and say that, well, we need to save the planet, and uh, then I, I think it's incumbent upon you to learn something about it first. Uh, a lot of what we hear about the environment is just complete hoax and or myth. And I, you know, I wouldn't, I would never believe anything the media says about the environment because they don't know anything it, at best. They're being, they're just parroting what they're, what they've been told to parrot. And the reality is often far, usually far different. I think that's why I mentioned the four billion, you know, what is typical for 4 billion years? <laughs> I always think about the, you know, we've been studying climate change because we've been for the last 100 years, we've looked at temperature change. And I'm like, that's smaller than even a minuscule drop in the bucket. It's actually an important topic, too, because, you know, what the, the media will often portray, a, you know, its views of what happened billions of years ago as science. And of course, it's not science. I mean, you know, fossils are interesting and whatever information you can get out of rocks are interesting, um, but it's not necessarily science. I mean, science is something that, you know, science is an idea that you formulate and that you can make predictions with in the future. And so if you can use the past to predict the future, okay, that's great. But you can't just look at the past and go, this is what happened because no one was there. You can't confirm it. You can't test it. It's just, you know, there um, you know, most, most famously, um, you know, during the 2000s, there was this hockey stick graph that purported to show temperatures over the past thousand years and how they all of a sudden spiked up in the 20th century. And this was all based on tree rings from about 60 trees sort of scattered around the world. And so these 60 trees are taken to represent average temperature, average global temperature for a thousand years. We can't even really do average global temperature today. <laughs> let alone go back and say, well, these tree rings represent temperature from a thousand years ago. So, you know, the past is off. What, what we think we know about the past is often misrepresented as science. All right. Well, thanks again to Steve Malloy of Energy and Environment Legal Institute for joining us. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. It was great. Right-